So I um, spend a, a couple of weeks, like every, every semester, uh, traveling. I go either to Orlando. Uh, sometimes I have to go to Kentucky. Uh, <laughs> but it's always, uh, you know, like a three, four, sometimes five-day uh, adventure. And um, it's always kind of cool because I get to, like, you know, interact with uh, other people who are in the same processes as I am. Uh, but so it's been kind of strange uh, lately because, you know, like the world's changed. There's COVID and wearing masks in school and like sitting far away from one another. Um, and so that's all kind of just just weird. But one of the things that like I've not been super disappointed by is the fact that they no longer encourage us to have lunch together in the cafeteria. Um, which sounds a little bit weird, but you know, there's just like this thing about it. Like I'm in this room and I'm just a bunch of people that I don't necessarily know. And it's not like I don't want to have a conversation with and get to know like a stranger. It's just like, honestly, there's this, there's this anxiety of like that first part of the initial interaction, you know, cause like I'm kind of an introvert. And so like, I'm already kind of worn out by like sitting in class and talking and like doing all these things for like all day long for a couple of days. But there's also just this thing. There's like this anxiety that I blame uh, childhood trauma for. Uh, it's not like anything bad happened to me, like as a child, like in my home or anything that you need to be concerned about. I'm talking about um, the trauma of the middle school and high school cafeteria, right? There's just this like icky reminder of that entire situation. But maybe you've forgotten. So let me let me remind you. Um, first rule is wherever you sit on the first day defines your entire existence. <laughs> at least for one whole year, right? And if you should choose to try and change the decision that you have made on day one, well, you might hurt somebody's feelings because you don't want to sit with them anymore. But along with all of that comes this anxiety on the first day of like, what if I walk up to an empty seat and I hear these words? You can't sit with us. It's like this ever looming question in the back of your middle school or high school child's mind of like this fear of rejection because the entire social stratosphere of the school is kind of on display in the cafeteria at lunchtime. It's like everything becomes clear. Everything is exposed, which is cool. If you're cool. <laughs> Everyone knows that you're cool because like, look at who you're surrounded by. Look at where you sit. But if you're like me and you're like, you know, not cool. It's not so cool. <laughs> it's not it's not so great. Like everyone can clearly see that eh, you, you're not cool, man. And so, um, you know, as we traverse uh, all of this, I. I I'm always reminded of um, the movie Mean Girls. I don't know if you've ever seen Mean Girls, but um, there's this iconic moment where, uh, where this, this girl, her name is Regina George, and uh, she's like the leader of the popular pretty girls. Uh, they're called the Plastics. Uh, she's told by her friends, you can't sit with us. It's just a little strange. But the thing is, Regina's broken a rule. 
She wore sweatpants on Monday. Gross. <laughs> so at this point in the movie, we're like, yes, because Regina is mean and we don't like Regina. And it's it like satisfies this human sense of justice of like, you know, the mean girl getting what was coming to her. But here's the truth that like mean girls and the whole uh, like school cafeteria situation points us to. For as long as people have had different families of origin, different cultural practices, or simply like differing uh, personal preferences, there's been this kind of natural separation. And which it's honestly not that bad in and of itself, because, you know, as the old saying goes, like birds of a feather flock together, right? However, the problem is that it, it rarely tends to just remain this mutually accepting social climate where we all just get along and acknowledge that everyone's kind of weird in their own way, but it's all right. What the cafeteria, what, what Mean Girls and Regina George remind us of as adults is, is the way that separation almost always turns into some sort of power struggle. And that those on the top, the upper echelon of society, dictate the terms of what is acceptable, what is good, and what is right. Like it's clearly not acceptable, good, or right to wear sweatpants on Monday. And the church is not exempt from this phenomenon which is uh, pretty disheartening because God has created uh, the diversity amongst us in the community of believers on purpose. And so first Corinthians 12 uh, tells us this. It says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all of the members of the body, though many are one body. So it is with Christ for in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free and we are all made to drink of one spirit. And so in the eyes of God, our diversity in the gifts that we have been given and just the fact that we are all different and all kind of weird in our own way is a gift. We've been, we've been given this not only as individuals, but in our nature as, as a global, multicultural, multinational uh, Jesus movement, which is a gift that makes us who we are. In fact, if we look back to the very first page of the Bible, we see these words. It says, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We as a whole in all of our diversity, reflect the image of God. And so when we, like as a church, create an atmosphere that feels more like the school cafeteria than the beloved and diverse community that God has made us to be, we miss the mark. We're not properly imaging God. We're being poor stewards of the gift of beloved community that God has made us and empowered us to be. And so a common problem uh, in the early church revolved around the inclusion of non-Jewish people into uh, this new Jesus movement. And so they were called Gentiles. And so there were a lot of questions because the Jesus movement arose as a, a sect of Judaism. 
And so the Jewish people, like they, they had questions and honestly, like pretty legitimate ones. So they, they wanted to know, did Gentiles have to take up our Jewish dietary laws? Do the men have to get circumcised? Do they need to observe our, our Jewish uh, holidays and festivals? What about the Sabbath? Do they have to keep the Sabbath holy from fr sundown on Friday till sundown on Saturday? And it was such a big deal. And it was tearing the church apart in such a way that, that the a special council had to be called in Jerusalem where the, the apostles all gathered and kind of searched the scriptures and, and what they remembered from their personal experience living with Jesus. And finally they came up with this conclusion. Yes. The Gentiles are allowed in and no, they don't have to do anything special or become Jewish to do so, which was really good news for Gentile believers, except that people are people. And so they didn't always agree with this. And so the apostle Paul, he spent a great deal of his uh, career and his life combating this very present threat to this new emerging Jesus community. And it was a threat because it went against really everything that Jesus stood for and taught. So in areas where Jewish Christians were the majority, they were excluding Gentiles and placing special circumstances and restrictions on them. They literally said, you can't sit with us because you eat weird food, right? Paul was beside himself over this. And um, a lot of times he just gets really angry. If you read like the first couple, uh, first couple sentences of the book of Galatians, like you'll see this. However, this wasn't the situation that was exclusive to like Jewish Christians uh, throwing their might over Gentile Christians. And so, you know, by the, the mid-century uh, AD, the, the mid-50s, about 20 or 30 years after Jesus's death, Christianity had made its way into the capital city of the empire. Right in the heart of Rome was a flourishing church. And what was going on in Rome at this time was there's this emperor, uh, his name is Claudius, and uh, he issued an edict that expelled all Jewish people from the city of Rome, including Jewish Christians. And so for a number of years, the only people who were Christians in Rome were Gentile Christians. However, that, that edict, that command expired and Jewish people began to return into the city and, and they started to worship in the churches. And as you can imagine, there was some conflict. And so this time it was the, the reverse of the normal. Now the, the Gentiles were the predominant culture. And so there was some conflict going on between what they believed they was right and proper and what these returning Jewish Christians believed. And so Gentiles were the dominant voice in the community. And so Paul has this kind of thesis statement about this whole deal that's happening. And, and it's the, the first couple of verses of Romans chapter 15. So he says this, we who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the purpose of building up the neighbor. 
And so what Paul does here is he, he doesn't classify this necessarily as a Gentile or a Jewish problem. So while he's, he's speaking into a specific moment in time in the Roman church, he's, he's also speaking of a much larger and non-time bound problem. And he does this by classifying people using two words, strong and weak. At least that's how our Bibles translate these words, which is not really that helpful to us because I don't know about you, but when I think about uh, strong and weak, I think about like bodybuilders and like, I don't know, not bodybuilders, right? But that's not what Paul is referring to here. He's not saying like, Hey, let the Olympic shot put champions among you teach the philosophy nerds how to get big and strong. These words strong and weak kind of have a different sense in Greek. And so the one word strong is uh, the Greek word dunitas, which means powerful, especially in regards to political power. And weak is almost the same word, just with a A in front of it. Adunitas means powerless. They're, they're antonyms of one another. And this is how Paul chooses to classify these two groups of people within the Roman church those with power and those without power. And so we'll just kind of need to keep that in mind uh, as we go through uh, the rest of this passage. And actually we're going to do like a Quentin Tarantino thing and jump back uh, a whole chapter and see what Paul has to say in um, leading up to this in chapter 14. And so it goes like this. Welcome those who are weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall and they will be upheld for the Lord is able to make them stand. See some judge one day to be better than another while others judge all days to be alike. Let it be fully convinced in their own minds. Let those who observe the day observe it in honor of the Lord. Also those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they are giving thanks to God. While those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. So we do not live to ourselves and we do not die to ourselves. And if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And so why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister or you? Why do you despise your brother or sister? We are, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God for it is written as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each of us will be accountable to God. I know that's uh, like a lot there. Uh, but what Paul is basically saying here is, is like, listen, some of you have different opinions on what it means to act right. Who are you to judge? Everyone here stands under the judgment of God because Jesus Christ is Lord of everyone. 
these differences of opinion about food and certain days as being set apart as holy, that those who are, are weak, remember that means who are in a position of being powerless are not things that you should be obsessing and chastising them for following. They do these things out of a respect and a desire to honor God. And so one thing that we need to keep in mind is that uh, Paul is not saying that like, Hey, there's no standard of morality in this Jesus community. And so like anything goes and nor is he saying like, Hey, it's okay for people to come in and tell you that you need to do other things in order to find salvation through Christ. He's already dealt with all of that stuff in the earlier chapters of uh, this letter to uh, the Roman church. And so what he's talking about our customs, beliefs, and just ideas that are not morally crooked and that don't contradict uh, the teachings and the life of Jesus. And so what he's saying is like, Hey, it's okay. It's okay to give one another some room to breathe and to worship the way that, that they see fit in accordance with their own conscience. He's promoting an attitude of mutual respect for the customs and practices of all believers. And so he's going to go on here and say this. Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead to put us to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. I know that I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But if it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean, if your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. So do not let your good be spoken of as evil for the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So Paul's next point is like, yeah, Hey, I mean, live, live and let live, but also we who have power, we who are strong, shouldn't create an atmosphere where others have to choose between feeling safe or feeling excluded. And that's a timeless truth. The church should not be a place where people have to choose between either feeling unsafe or feeling excluded. In fact, it should be quite the opposite. And so we have a lot of freedom in Christ, Paul says, but don't let that freedom distract others from the gospel message. And so while it's great to eat, drink, and be merry, what good does that do if it pushes people away from the church? And then Paul presses his point further. And his point is actually one of the rules that the, the founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley taught and lived by do no harm. And the truth about doing no harm is that it goes way beyond not intentionally doing things that are hurtful. Doing no harm requires people. It requires you and me to listen to, to understand and to empathize with one another. So for Roman Christians, it meant that these Gentile believers needed to sit down with their Jewish siblings and, and find out like, Hey, tell us what is it that injures you? 
that we do? What should we abstain from in your presence so that we are not a stumbling block to your faith so that you don't feel unsafe or excluded? And for us, it's, it's looking at the ways that we as a church have caused harm throughout history and acknowledge that, that much of that had a lot less to do with following Jesus and more to do with trying to conform everyone and everything around us to fit into a specific American idea of what acting right for Christians looks like. And so Paul is going to continue on. And this will actually be back where we started this whole journey. So, so, so we who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak. Not to please ourselves, for each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So that by steadfastness, by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together you may with one voice, with one voice, glorify the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to offer you a different translation of those first two verses. We who are powerful are obligated to bear or to carry the weaknesses of the powerless, but not to please ourselves. Let everyone please their neighbor for good, for their spiritual strengthening. And this obligation that is implied here is an ongoing and ever present reality that, that we, as those who have the power within our community are required to bear the burdens of those that are in the minority and bearing or carrying the weaknesses of the powerless among us is the same word that Jesus uses when he tells his followers to carry their cross and follow him which coincidentally is Paul's entire argument. Jesus bore your weaknesses so that as one voice, the powerful and the powerless can come together and glorify God. And today our problem isn't necessarily about like what food we should or should not bring to the potluck. Like if that's ever a thing again, I don't know, like I missed that. But um, today our problem is a bit more insidious. And we have to look at ourselves. We have to ask, who are those with power? And who are those who are powerless? And my suspicion from just like my own personal experience with being a Christian is that those with power are often we who have been lifelong Christians. And those who are without power are those who are new to the faith or just returning to the church. Those who have been had a less than favorable experience in the past with the church, but are, are being pulled back through God's grace to, to enter into this community and experience Jesus in a new and different way than they ever have before. 
And so the question is, are those who have power within our local church, within our denomination, or even within the, the global universal church, are those who have power coming alongside those who are powerless and asking, what do we do that hurts you? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that we could probably do a better job. And this is really, really hard because like it goes against everything that is natural. What, what is natural is the school cafeteria. And you know, one of my favorite uh, Christian voices is a guy named John Collins um, out in Portland. And, and he says this about power. He says, it's just human nature. That when you have power, you use that power to help you keep that power and to protect yourself and those who you like. But the ethic of Jesus is about when you have status and power, you use that to serve. And I think that we need only to look at like, you know, the American political climate and situation to understand the first part of that. But what John is saying is that the church is called to be the opposite of what we see playing out in the world. The opposite of what we see and experience in the school cafeteria as middle schoolers and high schoolers. And that's going to be uh, Paul's kind of final call. And so this is uh, Romans 15, chapter seven. And so he says, welcome one another. Therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God and welcoming, or could also be translated accepting, accepting one another in this sense is a mutually beneficial act. It's, it's not just simply an act of the powerful handing out in charity to the powerless. It's, it's an act that helps both parties to image God more closely. See, the one who had all power, Jesus himself welcomed and accepted us, the powerless. He stooped down from his seat of glory and power in heaven to bear our weaknesses, to bear our shame, to bear our powerlessness for the purpose of getting what he wanted on the cross. Reconciliation between us and God. And so because of that, we are given an opportunity to grow together as a community and an opportunity to strengthen our Christian witness in the world by, by coming together in service and unity, rather than trying to force some kind of made up uniformity on one another. See, the gospel is a message that shows us the beauty of God's diverse people worshiping together in one voice. That is the final scene in the biblical narrative. And it's a message that says that, hey, Jesus Christ is Lord over every single aspect of the human experience. We, when we recognize our propensity to allow the opposite to happen, to allow power dynamics to tear the church apart. And we actively work against that towards an, an attitude and an atmosphere of mutual acceptance and service to one another and the world. We help answer our own prayer. Thy 
kingdom come. Thy will be done. But guys, this isn't work that is done in a day. It's work that is done daily. And the first step is listening to one another. We live in a time where, where the worship experiences of all kinds of different faith communities are easily accessible to us. So I would encourage you to find a day this week, preferably not next Sunday, but you know, do what you got to do where you find and you watch the service of a church where the pastor, like, I don't know, isn't a white dude. Start a dialogue with yourself about your experience. Like what challenged me? What did I hear that was different than what I normally hear? What am I, what am I learning? But within our own local church, like I would challenge you to, to just reach out to one person. The express purpose of just listening to them. Just find out who they are. What hurts them? You can join us at 830 every morning on Zoom for morning coffee, where literally we just read the Bible and then listen to what one another got out of it. See, these are our small ways that we can practice the first step of doing no harm, of loving our neighbors, listening. You know, we might have a long ways to go, but that's okay. You know, one of the great philosophers of the 20th and 21st century said it best. He said, I always get to where I'm going. By walking away from where I was. It's Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> and so let's walk together into a season of being better stewards of this beloved community that God has gifted us with. And when it gets hard, when it gets hard, we can rest on these final words from Paul. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy spirit. So let's pray together. God, that is our prayer that we would find the strength and the hope and the peace that is found through your spirit, working in us, moving us to become more like you. Not just more like you in the way that we look, but more like you in the way that we act. More like you in the way that we love, that we look out for and use our status. And use our gifts to acknowledge and lift up those around us. You know, God, we, we admit that this is hard. We admit that there's a lot of work to be done. Quite frankly, a lot of work to be undone. But we also know that if we are going to fulfill the second part of your great command to us, to love you and to love our neighbors, that we're going to need your help. It's God, by the power of your spirit that renewed us, we ask that you would help us to renew our community to renew our world and to, to make not only this church, but the entire community around it, 
a place that knows that it is loved and that it is known, seen and wanting to be used by you for your glory. So God, we love you. We thank you and praise your name. Amen.